To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, I do not need a thing. But do you not? But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, so you can become rich, and white clothes to wear, so you can cover your shameful nakedness, and salve to put in your eyes, so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and dis- and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person, and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So I'm Pastor Sharon, Pastor of Discipleship and Care. And before we get into the scripture this morning and the sermon on what Mitchell just read for us, I wanted us to spend a moment in prayer. We've had a lot of things in in our world over this last week, in Bangladesh, in Istanbul, and now this morning in Baghdad, where violence is threatening people and lives are being lost. And we we need to pray. We need to seek God's guidance and care in this. So would you pray with me? Lord, we come here as um, in somewhat bewildered. We recognize before you that you are sovereign, Lord, over your whole world. And when we see evil and violence and hatred, it grieves us as it must grieve you. Oh, Lord, we pray that you would thwart the evil ones, that you would bring peace into both hearts and communities and relationships. We thank you that you are not far off from those who are grieving and hurting right now, those who are fearful. We thank you that you promise to be their shepherd and their guide. And Lord, we pray for the church around the world, for places where there is violence, for places where people are uncertain. We pray that the church of Jesus Christ, our brothers and sisters, would stand up in confidence and faith that they would be a source of healing and hope to those who are grieving. The world is yours, Lord, and we are yours. And remind us again how we walk in this place in faith and in constant hope because you will eventually make all things new. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So just a reminder to you... um, In a couple of weeks from now, on July the 17th, we will be celebrating our annual church picnic and baptism. And if there's anyone here or someone you know, a child that would like to be baptized or one of you take a step of baptism, we love to celebrate that with you. So I encourage you to come and speak to me or send an email to one of us, a pastors, and we'd love to talk with you about baptism. It's always a joyful time. The rest of you, make sure you put it on your calendars to be there in two weeks from now to celebrate that together. So here we are, 4th of July weekend. 
As Brendan said, it's usually, you know, always rainy. They always say summer starts on the 5th of July here in Washington, but hopefully we'll have better weather coming up. And it's right and good that we celebrate the gift of the country we, we live in. It's right and good that we um, celebrate that we live in a democratic republic, that we have resources and rights because of that. It's good to celebrate that. But there are many things in our American culture that really aren't worth celebrating. And one of them is kind of a myth, but I think it's in a particularly American myth, that says a self-made person is the one who can succeed. If you just go for it and get the status and the money and the health that you need, you can build your own reputation, you can make your way in the world. How many of us have heard that? That's a myth in many ways, but that self-made person is elevated. And we tend to talk about, don't we, the materialism and the wealth of people in our culture. If I were to ask you, I bet you could tell me who some of the top uh, 10 richest people in the United States are. We know it, don't we? We talk about them, we elevate them, but there's something that's going on with material wealth, and we can't just point to Forbes' top 10 list. It happens to all of us, where there's a smugness, where there's an entitled attitude that sometimes comes with wealth and material blessings. There were some researchers at the University of California, Berkeley. They decided after a time that they wanted to test a hypothesis. And this was their hypothesis. The more money a person has, the more likely they are to be a jerk. (laughs) They truly were going to test this hypothesis. And so they made numerous studies on this, um, everything from testing the driving habits of people with a lot of money to um, giving people advantages in a monopoly game. There were all kinds of things. And the tests did prove that a person's level of wealth or what they had accumulated adversely affected their compassion and their empathy for others. It increased their feelings of entitlement and their deservingness and their self-interest. Even the stature of some of these people as they filmed them in these Monopoly games was a swagger and a smugness with money they hadn't even earned, just been given, right? The test showed there was a correlation. Now, unless you think that we're just pointing at materialism as someone else's disease. Today I want us to be sure we're looking at our own hearts and minds too. Someone said to me after the first service, you know, most um, the, the income level of most of the people who live in this community is way much, so much greater than almost 90% of the world. So we are those wealthy people. We can't just point the finger at someone else. So what does this have to say to us today? And what about this church? That was the case for the church in Laodicea. Maybe they were like this plateau church, right? They had become wealthy, and in their materialistic stupor, they were boasting about their wealth when they were really bankrupt. We've been going through this series on the 
churches in Revelation, so each time lighting a candle to remember the church and the light of Christ that comes to them. And each, uh, this is the last one in these series, and we're going to be taking a look today at the same pattern we've been looking at before. The template for these, each of these letters that come to a church, a real church, in a real time, in a real situation. And here's what the template looks like. It starts out, to the angel at the church of, and today it's Laodicea. Then it says, these are the words of Jesus, and we find things, a revelation of Jesus in this. That his words and his character go together. We're going to find out some new things about Jesus today as he speaks too. And then he says, I know this about you. Usually it starts with praise. A good thing to start with when you're recognizing something in a person's life. But today we might not have so much praise in that. And then the, the pattern says, but this, I have this against you. And then it goes to the place of blessing. Blessings to those who overcome, to those who have persevered. So let's take a look to the angel at the church in Laodicea. What do we know about Laodicea? And if you have your Bibles, I would like you to open it, if you would, to Revelation 3, or if you have it on your phone or a tablet or wherever it is, we'll be referring to this passage that Mitchell read for us so well. Revelation 3, starting in verse 14. These are the churches in the whole area that um, John has been writing to in Revelation. Let's see. My little pointer. There it is. <laughs> Couldn't find it. He was um, exiled to this island off the coast. And from here he wrote letters. And we've been going through them. First to Ephesus, a huge center of Paul's ministry. Then to Smyrna, up here to Pergamum. On the trail, on the... Uh, pathway of trade to Thyatira, to Sardis. Last week we looked at Philadelphia, and today we'll be looking there at Laodicea. Laodicea was founded back in the uh, 253 BC, named for um, Antiochus' wife. His wife was named Laodice, so he named the city after her. How wonderful is that? But in this region at the time, this was a very well-known wealthy city. And you can see on this map some of the ruins that have come from that area. Um, Pastor Mark visited there, had some of these pictures. It was a very extravagant and beautiful city. And of course, this is probably some, from some of the temples that were erected to the gods in that area. But in this century, Laodicea was, had a great reputation, a chief city. It was strategically located. It was up high on a plateau. Sounds familiar, huh? High on a plateau. And there were, it was very secure from outside threats, this city was. And let me tell you what Laodicea was famous for. Three things particularly. One was finances, like I talked about. It was a center of banking. It was on a trade route so that people were coming in and out with commerce, uh, trading back and forth. It had a reputation of the bucks are there in Laodicea. And in fact, it had such a reputation that when an earthquake devastated the whole area in 60 AD, Laodicea was the only city who said, we don't need any help from the government. Rome doesn't need to help us at all. We can manage this on our own. And a historian, a Roman historian, Tacitus, said it this way about Laodicea. Laodicea arose from the ruins by the strength of her own resources and with no help from us. 
sounds like a self-made city, doesn't it? The other thing that, besides finances that Laodicea was known for was fashion. It was well known in the area of a certain black wool that the sheep in that area, you know, I was going to say they didn't raise black wool. They, they were black and they had beautiful wool and it was woven into a beautiful uh, material that was sent around the world. People would be, uh, it would be a luxury item if you had a black wool garment that had been made from wool in Laodicea. They were about fashion. Finance, fashion, and also pharmaceuticals. They were well known as a medical center. They had a famous medical school in Laodicea, and they were known as particularly for a certain ointment that was traded around the world at that time. An ointment that people put on their eyes to help with eye problems. They were famous for this wealth and health and fashion. But there was one part of Laodicea that made it a harder place to live. We up on our plateau have wonderful water resources, but in Laodicea, they didn't have any water source. They were far away from anything. And in that, in that area, they were near the Lycus River, but up north of them, a ways, in the town of Hierapolis, there was a very famous hot springs so that the water of that um, community uh, was known all over the world as soothing and medicinal purposes. And then about 10 miles to the east was Colossa. And Colossa had wonderful fresh spring water that was cold and refreshing. But Laodicea didn't have a water source. And so one of the ru- some of the ruins that were there in that area, oh, no, that's Hierapolis. So you can see that uh, they still enjoy the waters of that hot spring. Mark and Patty, Meredith, were actually here. I don't think they're in the picture anywhere, but um, enjoying the hot springs. I don't know if you've ever been to them, but they are wonderful, soothing, and if you can get over the smell of some of them. But they're wonderful, aren't they? And then, um, so, so for the city of Laodicea, they had to bring, and this is actually some of the ruins of an aqueduct that was used to bring the water to their city. They uh, needed something from another source, didn't they? And we're going to find out the importance of those water sources as we go through this passage. You probably already get it. So here is Jesus coming with his words to speak to this city. And how does he describe himself there in verse 14? These are the words of the Amen. The Amen. The faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. Now, we know how we use the term amen usually in our Christian circles. We say it at the end of our prayers, right? It says we're done and it's time to eat. That's what I used to think when I was a kid. Good. Amen. We get to eat. Amen is really the term that means so let it be. I affirm that. That is exactly what is the truth. And when Jesus Christ says, I am the amen, he's saying I can be counted on. I'm binding, unchangeable. There is nothing about me that will ever be um, uncertain. That is the amen. Where Jesus confirms every promise of God, every word. It goes on to say, I'm the faithful and true witness. Everything I do is faithful to who I am and who God is. And everything I speak is true. There is nothing that I am going to say to you that can't be an amen shouted to. 
I don't know, in our, in our um, congregation, it's not necessarily the norm for people to shout amen. But I want to tell you, you're welcome to do it today if you want. It would help me. But what I say, it's not always true. Okay? I'm not saying I'm not, I'm speaking the truth of God's word, but I might, you know, I'm, I'm human. But what Jesus says is always true. And we can always say amen to all of his truths. In fact, Paul talks about the same thing in, when he writes to the uh, Corinthians. This great passage. He says, For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, through Jesus, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. The amen. So whether you say it softly under your breath or shout it out, Jesus Christ is the amen. He is one we can count on. And so when he comes to this church... A church like us, but though probably smaller, they probably met in houses, but wealthy houses in Laodicea. When he comes to this church, what he says to them is very stern and very tender at the same time. A strong rebuke and a very intimate invitation. Let's hear the rebuke first, right? I want to hear the, word, the bad news first. Verse 15 and 16. Jesus says, I know your deeds. You're neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were either hot or cold, but you're neither, he says. Now, there have been times where this has been interpreted as um, to be lukewarm, as Jesus says, is to lack spiritual fervor. Just, you know, get your devotion up harder and be more hot with the flame of God. But what's actually in this passage is that both the term hot and cold are positive terms. Think of what that community around there was. Hierapolis. The hot water was soothing and medicinal and healing for people. The cool, cold water of Colossa was refreshing, was a, a way to receive um, rest and refreshment. My husband and I were in, down in Phoenix over the weekend, last weekend, and uh, it was hot. It was nice, but it was hot. And the water there, not so good. You know, we have really good water here. But what made that water refreshing to us was they had a lot of ice, and we had a lot of cold water. And so cold water was a gift. So to be cold here would be refreshing. What is Jesus saying to this church when he says, you're lukewarm? He's saying, you have deeds, your ministry is neither refreshing like cold water or healing and soothing like hot water. You are nothing. You are stagnant. You are lukewarm. I wish you were either one of those. But your deeds, there's nothing to them that is worthwhile. They didn't have a ministry that was effective in any way. And Jesus looks at them and he says this, in fact, you're so lukewarm, it makes me sick. I want to spit it out. And the word is actually, I want to vomit it out. You're just, your deeds are ineffective. You're lukewarm. You do not refresh nor heal. You just cause nausea. What an indictment. What a rebuke. I heard someone define this sermon as, the church that made Jesus sick. And wouldn't that be an awful thing to say about your church? 
I'm the ch- we're the church that makes Jesus sick. But Jesus comes with a strong rebuke because he has a strong invitation afterwards. Why was that lukewarmness so offensive to God? They were okay. They were doing okay. Well, he says it very clearly in verse 17. Jesus says, This is what I hear you talking about. This is what I hear you saying in Laodicea. I'm rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. Their self-sufficiency was so evident. I'm rich. I've got it made. I don't need anything from anybody else. I can depend on my own resources, the church is saying. You know, the big part of being lukewarm, as Laodicea was, was this is what they were saying, and they didn't realize, really, who they really were. They didn't see their own hearts. They didn't see their own condition. They had a self-satisfaction. We're fine the way we are. We're doing great. Oh, what a warning to any person or any church that would become self-sufficient and smug in ourselves that would look at a budget as we did last week with our church and say, we're doing great, we're doing fine, that wouldn't have in every one of our ministries this need that says, without the presence of the Holy Spirit, it's totally worthless. Why are we doing what we do? We don't rest in our wealth or our ability to do things for ourselves. This church had grown that way and been more concerned with their own well-being and their status than they were with the commands of Christ. And that is an indictment, a hard indictment for a church. They had the mistaken notion that they could trust in their own accomplishments. And I think that happens with prosperity. When you don't have hardship, when you know there's money there to pay for whatever you need, sometimes it can just lead to a complacency like... I'm fine the way I am. I don't need much. That's what comes with prosperity. This temptation to trust in our own blessings instead of the blesser, Jesus Christ himself. We come comfortable and sometimes totally lukewarm. And so what does Jesus say to him? Then you think you're rich. You think you've got it made. But here's what you really are. And listen to these words. Ouch. Verse, the part, second part of verse 17, but you do not realize you are wretched, you're pitiful, you're poor, you're blind, and you're naked. That's the indictment Jesus speaks to this church. But he doesn't leave them there. That's the bad news. That's the hard news. That's like looking at themselves in a mirror and saying, ah, this is who we are. But Jesus says, I counsel you. I have something to provide you that is so much better than what you think. Once you realize your true condition, then you're ready to receive what Jesus offers. And so he says, buy from me. Now, we don't truly buy anything from Jesus. I've never come to Christ with money and said, okay, I need some more grace today. I need some forgiveness. We don't buy things. But Jesus is using that terminology. It's like... uh, Commerce. It's showing an economic trade. And he's saying, you can acquire from me, you can receive from me, you can gain from me something that you can never pay for. You see, in this economic exchange, 
the cost has already been paid. And we only receive. We're just the receivers of something great that Christ has for us. You hear the same language in the prophet Isaiah, chapter 55, when he says this, Come, all you who are thirsty. Come to the waters. You who have no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money, without cost. This is what Jesus offers us. Something good for us that we, he's paid the price for. And so the will of Christ is for his church, for us to recognize our own condition, our true condition, that we're really needy beggars. And when Jesus says, when we recognize that, when we know who we are, then he has something to provide for us. We can't give this for ourselves. He says, I want your poverty to be replaced with spiritual wealth. I have gold for you that's refined in fire. You can't earn this gold. I have it for you. I have white clothes for you. You will feel naked and ashamed, but I have something for you that will cover that, that will be the righteousness of Jesus Christ as a gift to you. The good deeds done in his name that clothe you. His righteousness alone that covers you. And your blindness, he's got salve for your eyes. If you have a hard time seeing yourself as you truly are, or seeing other people, ask Christ. He has salve for your eyes so that you can see truly who you are and who Christ is, what he wants to give. He wants you to move out of self-delusion that you can make it on your own and receive for him what he can provide so that you can see. Isn't it interesting that in this city, Laodicea, that prided itself in those three things, its wealth, its wool, and its eye salves, that these are the things that Jesus says, you thought you had it all, but I'm the only one that can provide it. This refined gold, these white garments, this salve for your eyes. And then the invitation. I love this invitation. And this may be a familiar scripture to you, used in a lot of different ways. But hear it one more time. Jesus asked them, I love you, so I'm gonna, I rebuked you because I loved you. So repent, pay attention. And then hear my invitation. Here I am. Wouldn't you love to hear those words from Jesus? Here I am. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. The the amen, the faithful and true witness, the everlasting one is waiting at the door and he's offering his presence and all that he can give that we can't gain on our own. Jesus wants to come in and he wants to eat with us. The term here in the Greek is, is really the supper meal. The meal that was at the end of the day when people kind of connected with each other and relaxed and had a great conversation with each other. Jesus says, I want to eat with you like that. I want to have supper with you. I want us to sit down together at the table and enjoy one another. And he's knocking at that door and offering it. That picture has been painted throughout the centuries. This one was done Jesus' invitation at the door was done by William Holden Hunt, an English painter in the 1800s. 
and the original painting is now in one of the chapels in Oxford. I know it's a little hard to see, but you can see that this door has got vines growing all over it. The door hasn't been opened in quite a while. And if you could look even closer, you would notice that there's no door on the, uh, there's no knob on the outside. The knob's on the inside. Jesus says, listen to my voice. I want to come in, but you have to open the door. I'm not going to force my way in. You invite me in, and then I'm ready to come with all that I provide. I'm ready to sit with you and commune with you and enjoy you, and you enjoy me. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. You see, the church in Laodicea thought they had it made. They thought behind that door they had everything they needed. But Jesus jars them back to reality with this hard word. And then he says, I love you. I desire so much for you and I have it here to offer. Just open the door. He walks in. He sits down with us. We have close communion with him. What a beautiful picture of the gift of Christ for us. This is the revelation we're going to celebrate together when we come to communion. We've been invited into a meal with the God of the universe who provides everything we need. And he's revealed himself to us all the way through this passage, this series in Revelation. Who is this Jesus? Don't miss who he is. The revelation of Jesus Christ for all of us. Let's just review some. As we go through this, to the church in Ephesus, that first church that had lost its first love, Jesus says, I'm the one who guards you. I'm the one who walks with you. And to the church at Smyrna, he says to them, I'm the first. I'm the last. I'm the beginning and the end. There is nothing beyond who I am. I was dead, but I'm now alive, he says to Smyrna. And then he says to Pergamum, I am the one who speaks truth. And lights a light. It'll work, I know. Well, we might just have to do it this way. Christ's light never goes out. We'll try this again. I think I'm running out of a... There we go. There's Pergamum. He speaks the truth. His words are like a double-edged sword that cuts through to convict and to restore us. And then Sardis. Oh, Thyatira. He is in Thyatira, he's the one who sees all things. He, his eyes are blazing. His feet are like bronze. He stands firm forever. We can trust him. And then in Sardis, Sardis, where the fullness of the Spirit of God is held by Christ himself, and he says to us, I am the one who can give this to you. I am the holder of the Spirit, and I offer it to you. And then last week at Philadelphia, Jesus says, I am the holy, I am the true one, I am the door through which you find life that is truly life. This is the revelation of Jesus. This is the one who invites us to this table. 
But it's come start, we come to this table first with confession. We have to recognize our need. We can't be self-sufficient like the church there. We need to come with confession and need and put our materialism and our self-sufficiency at the cross of Jesus and say, I need you. So as we prepare to come to this meal that he's given his life for, I invite you to stand, and we are going to confess together. You see, here is where Jesus demonstrated his love, and here is where we also express our need. And today I'm going to invite you to use some ancient words of the church as I lead you in a time of confession. Those are the words, Lord, have mercy. Let's say it together. Lord, have mercy. And as I say the prayer, I will invite you to say, together we say, Lord, have mercy. We know when we come to him, it's like opening that door and receiving the mercy of Christ. Let's pray together. Most holy and merciful Father, you see us, you know us, and so we confess before you that we have sinned by our own fault in thought, in word, in deed, by what we have done and by what we've left undone. Together we say, Lord, have mercy. We have not loved you with our whole heart, mind, and strength. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We have not forgiven others as you have forgiven us. Together we say, Lord, have mercy. We confess to you, Lord, our past unfaithfulness, the pride, the hypocrisy, the impatience of our lives. Together we say, Lord, have mercy. We confess our self-indulgent appetites and our self-sufficient ways, our exploitation of other people, and our disregard of your truth. Together we say, Lord, have mercy. Thank you for the gift of your mercy, Lord Jesus Christ. We hear your voice inviting us to come. You see us as we are, and then you restore us and forgive us, for your love is everlasting. We get, receive again this gift of your presence in this meal, bought by the cross and the passion of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we say thanks in his name. Amen. You may be seated.